1: You have to believe that you're here because you're the best, and there are people who are going to be mean and nasty to you because of
2: your woman, because you're black, and you cannot let it get to you. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas, and we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes,
3: right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode where we share a fascinating conversation with Uber's global head of social impact, Julia Page. This mum of triplets, yes triplets, has so much wisdom to share and she's learned some amazing lessons about resilience and the
2: stories we tell ourselves as well. She certainly has. Julia's had an amazing career, including working numerous years as Chief of Staff for Maria Shriver, the First Lady of California, who was married to Governor Schwarzenegger. I love her stories of meeting the likes of Oprah and other celebrities, didn't you? Yeah, it sounds
3: as if she's had some pretty amazing experiences in that role. Following her role there, Julia went on to senior marketing and global roles, first at Google
2: and YouTube and now at Uber. Not to mention the fact that along the way, she had triplets while she was working at Google. I know, it's pretty incredible and I have serious respect. (laughs) Me too. In this episode, you'll hear some great stories and you'll learn how Julia found out she was having triplets, how she manages juggling work and a young family, what she thinks her superpower is, and why we all have to learn to tell ourselves stories that build us up rather than tear us down. Love that. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with the positive and pragmatic Julia Page. Julia Page, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on. We're going to spend a lot of time really delving into your journey. But before we do, the way we like to start is we like to just ask, how would you describe what you do today? Just in a couple of sentences to somebody you've just met.
1: I work in the social impact space. And what that means is I work with companies to really help them not only identify their purpose, but really use that purpose for good. Really show what brands can do to make the world a better place.
2: Fantastic. You know, I'm really excited to delve a little bit later into that purpose piece and how you help companies do that. Before we do, I'd love to just explore the young Julia Page what was your childhood like and where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, which is a Midwestern, uh, medium-sized town in Ohio. It thinks of itself as a big city, but it's really a town. And I am one of four kids. There's 10 years between the oldest and youngest. I would do anything for my siblings. I grew up in a great family. My mom and dad, my, my father passed a couple of years ago, but who really believed in the power of family. As my father would say, you know, they weren't rich in money, but they were rich in spirit and they were rich in love they had for their
2: children. It's beautiful. It was a good time. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like you had a really good grounding. And what was the young Julia like? I was a very curious person. I loved to explore. And
1: I loved to study too. I was you know, kind of a nerdy kid, loved to read Um, What else? Uh, Love to have fun. I grew up in a family that uh, laughter was very important. My father said, no matter what, there's always something to laugh about. What else would I say about myself? I always thought I knew what I was going to do. I definitely was a bit of a planner. And of course, I planned to be an investment banker, and I would be married by the time I was 25, and I'd have three kids by the time I was 30. And then life would be perfect. Of course, none of that happened. You know, the old saying, we plan, God laughs. Uh-huh. And I think that the, the fun of it being so fastidious of a planner is that when nothing happens as you plan, you just learn to keep moving. And that's a good lesson to learn. Right. That's classic. So
3: when did you identify you wanted to be an investment banker?
1: Oh, that was a little older. I was probably... Um, I was in college then. Okay, so it was right. A long time ago. No, I wasn't like a 12 year old investment banker. No. <laughs> um, but I, I had always been very good with numbers and I always been very good with math. And uh, it was a career that I saw. I said, oh, those guys seem to have a lot going on over there. But I just really realized that wasn't my passion. So, yeah. What did you study at college? Economics. Undergraduate, I went uh, economics. Uh, I, as I say, I love math. I love figuring out problems. And then I went to graduate school. You know, I got my MBA. And that's when I started to lean into marketing a little more.
3: And if I'm not mistaken, you went from there to NBC. Is that right?
1: Actually, I went to Columbia Pictures. That's, okay. that's a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> so when I was getting out of business school and I had decided I didn't want to be an investment banker and I was trying to think what I wanted to do. I thought the entertainment industry was fascinating, but this is a girl, you know, who'd only lived in the Midwest because I'd gone to graduate school in Michigan. And so I applied to work at all of these studios and it happened to be that my resume landed on the the desk of a guy who was putting together a program where they're going to bring in MBAs and rotate them throughout the company for two years. And so I started out at Columbia Pictures was where I worked for a couple of years in this incredible program. That must have felt
3: like a fairy tale come true when you got that news that you would uh, got that job.
1: Yeah, and of course, it's so funny because um, I think of it as a fairy tale. You know, this is, once again, I'm a Midwestern girl. I'd never left my home. And I tell my parents, I'm moving to New York and they're like, what, you moving to New York? And I said, yeah, they were scared for me. And it was the first time I'd ever kind of seen that uh, in my parents. And I said, I'll be fine. The thing I realized at that point is I had been brought up to not really fear anything. And it wasn't until years later that my father, his kind of sideline gig was uh, being a junior child psychologist because he was going to raise all his kids perfectly. Um, but one of his things was he wanted to make sure his kids had no fears, And so that we would always just know to go do stuff and you would never think something could hurt you or something could harm you. And I think that was such a great gift that my parents gave me. So when I told them I was moving to New York, I had no fears of going to this big town. I'd find an apartment. I did my job. I'd do great at my job. And, you know, that would be that.
3: I'm gonna let's come back to getting to New York, but really curious because that's such a great thing that your parents did. But um, sometimes the the school of hard knocks in in life, particularly in school, right? Because kids can be cruel. How did it work that even if you had knockbacks or you felt sort of mortified at some occasion at school, that you still didn't learn to develop fears as a result of those kinds of normal things that happen to kids growing up?
1: I think it was. Um... They were they like dust you off and send you back in there. Yeah. You couldn't sit and wallow. You know, we we're we're not a wallower family. And you knew that life was going to challenge you, but you had to step up. And I think if you're brought up to believe that the power is in your hands, not someone else's hands, then you say, okay, I can fix this. You know, so if someone, you know, would be mean to me or or something I might say to my dad or my mom, I'm like, you know, they don't like me. And I'm like, well, they don't, you're choosing to sit in a relationship with someone who doesn't, why are you there? You know, why are you allowing them to dictate this? Things like when someone might say something or I remember talking to my dad about a job and I said, well, this person thought I got this because I was black. And he said to me, someone's always going to think you got something because you're black, because you're a woman because of whatever reason, but you prove to them that you're there because you're the best. I think that was good advice.
3: Amazing advice. Yeah. How do you help people in your team and adults who haven't had the benefit of being raised with those kind of fantastic
1: beliefs, if you like? It was interesting because I stay in contact with some of the folks I have worked with over the years. And a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine who used to be on my team was reorganized and she got a job that wasn't what she thought she should get. And so she was looking around and it's, you know, this person's fault or that person's fault or, you know, why I'm a failure. And I had to remind her, I said, first off, you don't even like this job. (laughs) I said, so you've got reorganized into another position in this job and you're mad you didn't get a more senior position when you really didn't like the job. And you can either sit here and blame everybody else, or you can sit here and say, this is a moment where I'm reminded that this isn't really what I want to do. And I'm not going to allow this moment to dictate who I am. I'm going to actually go and use it as a a way to get out and find what I really want to do. There's always a reason to feel defeated. And you can either choose to allow yourself to wallow in it, or you can choose to say, okay, let's go. I'm not going to just sit here and feel defeated because I have a, you know, more to do with my life. Now that's the best part of me. And it's the worst part of me because I, you know, sometimes I, a friend of mine once said, you just need to calm. Some people need a little break. Some people need to mourn. And I'm always like, okay, let's go. So it's, uh, as I say, it's my biggest strength and my biggest weakness.
3: No, mm, yeah, that I think, um, Overall, though, that stood you in very good stead. Right. Let's take you back to uh, New York. You were about to tell us what happened when you got there.
1: You know, you get there, you think you're making all this money. This is like my first real job. I'm like, oh, this is great. I have to figure out how much I'm going to pay for rent. I think it's like, a, I can't even remember what it was. Let's just say it was $1,000. And then I look at the paper to see what I can afford. And they've given also they've given you a, a person to help you find a place. And you just realize, oh my gosh, I'm really poor <laughs> and I can't afford anything. And so I ended up with this studio that was so small, but you know, it was mine. And it was the first time I'd had a space that was all mine. And the first time my parents came to visit me, they walked in and my father goes, is this it? Where's the rest of it? And, you know, Of course, my father with the jokes. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I could see they were proud of me and that I had done it. And I think that's the thing that I used to work for the most is my parents. My parents being proud of me always mattered to me.
2: Yeah. Amazing. And after that, you went to NBC, I think, and then on to Maria Shriver. Can you explain a little bit about who Maria Shriver is first for our listeners?
1: I worked with Maria at NBC. She is still my mentor and a very dear friend of mine. She is one of my kids' godmother. She is uh one of the greatest women I am lucky enough to know and to call a dear friend. She is a journalist at NBC News. She's uh, part of the the Kennedy family. And uh, she probably, besides my parents, uh, has had the most impact on my life. I worked for her for many years and I learned a great deal from her. And I think it was a great coupling of what my parents gave me and then what she continued to give me. And it was there's a self-confidence that Maria had. And Maria, I remember one time we walked into a room full of, you know, people. She goes, okay, let's go. I go, I don't know anyone here. She goes, I don't know anyone here either. Just fake it. And she just has this irreverence at the same time as she's wickedly smart and wickedly funny and uh, never takes herself too seriously. And it's just an extraordinary teacher.
2: Yeah, amazing. What would you think have been your greatest learnings from her?
1: Never doubt myself. No one walks into something knowing something. I think uh, the interesting thing is I think men are trained to believe they walk into something and they think they own it. Women walk into something and they think, oh, my gosh, they're going to realize I don't know anything here. You have to switch how you think. Mm. When you walk in, you have to think, I know it. And if I don't know it, I'll figure it out. And if this doesn't work, then move on to something else. It's almost like there wasn't failure. There was, you stopped trying and there's a
2: difference. Yeah. What is the difference? I think failing is
1: when it's almost like a a finality in that, that it's over, it's done. If I don't succeed at something and I say, okay, either I was trying the wrong thing or I was trying it in the wrong way, or maybe I should look at the problem and completely Different way, or whatever. I think there is a continuation of the effort. And even if that continuation is, this isn't the right thing for me, I need to go over here. But I learned something saying, this isn't the right thing for me, or getting to the point where I can say that. And I think if you fail, sometimes you just stop and you have to kind of pick yourself up and keep going. And have you ever failed at anything? Of course, I fail all the time. It is all perspective. I think the only way you learn is through failure. But do you stop there or do you say, okay, good lesson, keep moving on. And I'm of the good lesson, keep moving on school.
3: I want to um, go back uh, to Maria and for our listeners' context. So Maria Shriver, um, as you say, is part of the Kennedy family and was is an NBC reporter, but also she married Arnie Schwarzenegger and became the first lady of California and as part of that really made the Women's Conference, no doubt, with your incredible contribution, a real piece on the map for women's events. I'd love to hear you would have met some incredible people through the Women's Conference and just being Chief of Staff to the First Lady of California. What's one of the most memorable moments of
1: of meeting someone that you recall? It's easy. So this was when I was still at NBC. So we were at the Democratic Convention covering it for NBC News. Maria says, hey, I'm going to go to this party. Do you want to go with me? She was always like, no, don't sit at home. Just come with me. I said, okay. So I go with her and we go pick up uh, her friend, Oprah and Gail. And then we pick up her cousin, John was alive at the time, John. And then uh, we meet uh, Tom Brokaw, who was, you know, at the time, anchoring the news. Then we go to this party and it's okay. Tom, John, Oprah, Gail, Maria, then me. And I go, and I'm like the last I go, I know I'm with them. Can you (laughs) believe it? I've met so many amazing people throughout the years like that because you realize they're just like you. And they're no different. They just have a different job. They, they have had a different childhood. Um, but there's probably more similar than different. Because when you also meet someone, you know, Arnold, who in, started with incredible, you know, poor to incredible wealth. And he's worked hard. You know, no one works harder than Arnold. And he's incredibly smart. And you see, you know, he just worked hard. You know, so if I work hard, I can do this. Or if you work hard, you can do this. Or you can achieve whatever you wish to achieve in your life, but you have to work hard. Uh, I think that's one of the things I see nowadays is that they don't value work like they used to, as I say the kids these days. And I want to make sure of my own kids that they understand that's how you get places work. It's not about what you look like. It's not where you're from. That's nice and great. But you just have to realize the most important thing you can do is work and really focus and get things done.
3: How would you help your kids draw that boundary when they're grown up between working hard and working too long? How do you define that line?
1: Well, I think you have to have a balanced life. And I think that one of the things Maria's mom once said to me is that you don't ever get everything you want. You get everything you want over a lifetime. Uh, It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And if you think like that, and you were also brought up to have fun and laugh and be athletic, I think what I want my kids to grow up with is a balanced life. And if you teach them the importance of, you know, we go on family vacations, we go see different parts of the world, we You know, sit around his family and laugh. Uh, My husband is an amazing chef and he cooks and it's just trying to inspire curiosity in them on a lot of different levels. If if you're a multidimensional person, you may work really hard on something at a moment, but then you'll learn, I can put that down and I'm going to go do this. Or I can put that down because I want to go outside and enjoy some fresh air or go for a run or read a book or laugh. Okay, now I have to go back to work. And I think it's making sure you have a balanced life, which is really important. Yeah. Fantastic.
2: Have you always been able to create that balance for yourself?
1: No. No, <laughs> I can't to this day. There are times when I get overwhelmed. I mean, this pandemic is overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. It's it's like ridiculous. And we've been sitting in our house in California for, you know, five months with three kids. And, you know, my husband who, you know, has this grocery store and so then I worry about him every day. He walks out the door that he might, you know, contract the virus and, uh, you know, we have to make sure our kids developmentally are growing. My daughter has not seen another little girl in five months. My kids have only played with themselves. Luckily, they have each other, you know, so they can have kids their age to play with. My job is incredibly stressful. It's uh, a lot of work. But, and so you have to take it one at a time. And I'm big on that. Like, let's just get one thing done at a time. So it's almost like a Jackson Pollock picture. If you think, how did he paint this from 20 feet away? You're like, good Lord. But if you walk up close to it and you look at a line and then you look at another line and then you take it like that, it allows you to realize how you should think about life. Yeah. Because it's beautiful. always going to be overwhelming.
2: Absolutely. And I want to just move to your time at Google because I think at one point you were director of creative content, weren't you? Was that a Google or YouTube? That was a Google, right? What What did that actually mean? What were you doing? Well, I had
1: um, created something called Zeitgeist, which was a, a thought leadership event for. It started out as kind of for our most important customers and for our most important executives, and what it was was bringing how are we going to tell the story of what we do in interesting ways? And how are we going to introduce the world to people we think they should know from unbelievable science minds to people who are making the world better in ways that you can, you know, and and you kind of meet all of these amazing minds and get to introduce them to people who really can help push their work forward. So It was was a really cool job.
2: Yeah. Do you know, it's funny because, you know, I was a director at Google and I remember those Zeitgeist events. I went to many of them. I had no idea that you were behind them. So that's really cool. They were amazing. Yeah. And it's, uh, let's take it back. So when I had done the women's conference
1: and Maria said, I want you to kind of run this. I've never done a women's conference. I would never even go to a women's conference. And she said, well, build one you would go to. And I said, okay. And so I've always looked at things that could this keep me entertained because I have the attention span of a gnat. And so if I find it interesting or if I find them compelling, everybody else will. Because I've seen so much at this point because, you know, working in news, meeting all these people, and then starting this women's conference, and then going to Google to take it that same kind of – thinking or looking at way of looking at things to a bigger stage so because yeah, i started with news and telling that story and then using that to tell a story in the women's conference and using that to tell a story with zeitgeist and you realize story is key story is if you can convince someone of something if you can tell your story in a compelling way you can really make a difference in the world
2: and i'm sure that that's really holding true in your new role how long have you been at uber now I've been there for almost six months. Yeah. Interesting six months.
1: Uh-huh. Very interesting six months. I started three weeks before Shelter in Place started. The funny part was I started and COVID was just happening. And you know, our office in Hong Kong had to close and people were talking about no one thought it was going to come to the US. And then it started coming and people were like, okay, what are we going to do? We, we have to give money. We have to give money. And I said, no, we shouldn't give money. First off, We're not making a profit yet. So what is the thing that we can do? And what is the thing that we can contribute to really help here, and to really show our value to the world we work in? I said, we can give rides. And I said, we can give food. We can haul freight. So really across all of our lines of business, I said, let's put everything together. And we're going to give 10 million things. You know, rides, meals, deliveries, all that kind of stuff. And we're going to do this across the entire world during this COVID period. And it really worked. And the company actually believed. And it was really great to see Uber see that they could be liked and respected for just doing what they do. Mm. I love bringing that to the company. And I love reminding them that they're here, part of their job. It's to make the world a little better. And it's so powerful, isn't it? When you can
3: find that place of congruence with the business model and a social purpose. That's where the beauty and the amplification and the sort of sustainability lies. I'd love to ask you one other question about joining Uber. And so specifically on inclusion, you know, what sort of thought process did you go through? And clearly, you know, the big sort of Susan Fowler stuff was in 2017. So that's like three years ago. And clearly, you know, the CEO's changed and I'm sure lots of things have changed. But what, what did you have to think about before joining in terms of being a woman, a woman of color? You know,
1: what was your thought process? Well, I think this is back to what my dad said. You have to believe that you're here because you're the best, and there are people who are going to be mean and nasty to you because of you're a woman, because you're black, and you cannot let it get to you. And there have been some situations. I think Uber, from what I've heard, is you know, leaps and bounds above where it was, but I think business itself, tech itself, is a male world, And you have to really have a strong sense of self to be there. It is not for the weak. And that's just the situation. And you have to decide, do you want to be here? And I did. Do you think you can do the work? I could. The other thing I always tell folks is figure out what you can do that no one else can do. What is your magic superpower? And the thing that I can do is I can tell a story. And I can convince others that that's the right story. And that story is usually about impact. How can we really... Showcase what this brand can do, and the, the, how this can can really contribute to society, and how the people should feel when they see that big Uber sign. Think that's a great brand. Those people always show up. We have to build that over time, and I'm sure we'll get there. But I have to be able to convince the people in the room that we need to get there.
3: Absolutely, and I love the fact that you have that strong sense of self. What practices? do you do or perhaps need to do to maintain and continue to nurture that strong sense of self?
1: First off, I am uh, by no stretch of the imagination, superwoman. And I think there's also things that, you know, with like with my kids, is it, I always tell folks I work with, you know, I ask them their opinion about something. I said, listen, I would rather you let's have a conversation here that may be uncomfortable because this is work. I'm just trying to do the best I can. I have no feelings in it. Really, I don't. Now, at my house, if my husband says something, I'm like, oh, my kids, but that's where I feel, that's where I'm more vulnerable. But at work, I'm just, I have a really sheer focus of, I just want to do the best I can. And I'm not always going to do it. So I have to figure out how to get better and how to get better. And when someone criticizes me, I think, okay, that's a way I can get better. In my entire career, there's one time I've ever cried at work. That was a long, long time ago. I said to myself, okay, no, this is work. This isn't my life. This isn't what I want written on my tombstone. And one day I was, uh, I think one of the kind of the best lessons for myself was I had come home and this is when I had worked at an agency for an ICM for five seconds and, I came home and I was like, I had a really bad day. And I was living with my sister, who's a doctor and who is in residency at um, at UCLA. And I said, you know, I had a bad day. And she goes, I had a bad day and my patient died. And in that moment, it was a lesson for me because that's a bad day. This is just a frustrating moment.
3: It feels like you've been really good at sort of really living not to take things personally at work and that you've insulated that sort of vulnerable feelings part to some degree at work versus home.
1: Would that be a fair summary? I think that's a fair summary. However, I think we've all gone through things at work that aren't fair. And there was a certain situation that happened at Google that was something that happened to me that really wasn't fair. Someone said some things that weren't nice They took it up to management. It was kind of became this whole big hullabaloo over something which really wasn't right. And I had to learn a lesson there. And it was hard to get over, but I had to. And I kind of looked at it like it was almost like picking up sand. And I really wanted to hold on to it, but it was going through my fingers. I had to let it go through my fingers and I had to get over it and I had to move on. Life, as my father would say, is just not fair. It isn't. And the sooner you can accept that, and then when things that aren't fair happen, I'm not saying you don't get mad or don't get pissed off. We all that's human nature. But you can either stay mad and get pissed off, or you can say, I have got to move on. I'm not gonna let this moment define me, and I'm not gonna let this person and you know their little craziness be anything in my life.
2: Yeah. It really is a good lesson, isn't it? One thing we can't leave this conversation without discussing is the moment that you found out that you had triplets. How did you feel? Yeah.
1: It's a funny story because we had been trying to have kids for a long time. Okay. First off, as I said, I had dated my husband for 10 years and there was a time when we had broken up and I said, you know what? I'm going to have a kid by myself we were still friends. And so I said, Hey, um, you know what, could I have some of your sperm? Cause I'd like to have a kid. And he's like, are you kidding? What is wrong with you? No. I said, okay, I'm just telling you because we've been going back and forth for many years, That sometime years from now, when we're back together permanently and we have a hard time getting pregnant, I'm going to remind you of this moment. And he's like, whatever. And literally, you know, we get back together. Years go by, and we're having a hard time getting pregnant. And he said to me one day, he goes, I remember you saying that. I didn't say anything to him. He brought it up. And I said, aha, see, I told you. So we had been trying and trying and trying. And uh, we had done IVF. And this was our fourth try. And uh, they had put two embryos in. I look at the little thing. And I go, I think I'm pregnant. And he's like, what? I go, I really, I think I'm pregnant. And he goes, okay. So they do the test and the test numbers are really high. So they're like, it's twins. So we assumed we were having twins. And so right before we go into the doctor's office, I said, listen, because you know I am still a bit of a planner. I said, we have a couple more embryos left. I've always wanted to have three children. So we're going to have the twins and then we're going to do this one more time. And he goes, what is wrong with you? Let's just get through this and then we'll figure out where the future is, but let's just kind of focus here. I said, okay, okay. But remember, I really want three kids. So we go into the doctor's office and sitting in the stirrups, and this is the first time they've kind of looked around and the doctor says, yep, it's twins. I said, great. And we're smiling and he goes, oh, oh, and that is not what you want to hear when you're sitting in the stirrups. And, And so he goes, uh, uh, one of the eggs split. And so we're, I'm like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And he goes, there's three. Oh my goodness. And I look at my husband and, and I burst out laughing because literally I had had this conversation like 10 minutes ago. And so uh, three, he goes, yep, three. And uh, there's two identicals and one singleton. And so we get up and we're walking and he turns to me, my husband turns to me and says, just so we're clear, this is it. There are no more. This is it. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. And and that is a 100% true story.
2: Oh, my goodness. And so how have you both managed with three kids and you working in a – well, I think you both have got pretty full-on jobs, right? How have you managed?
1: Uh, Well, we don't. And uh, it's just – but the thing is because I grew up with four. So I was used to crazy land. He grew up with a brother. So it's tough. It's tough having three people the same age who develop that age in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it's tough having um, two boys who are very physical and a girl who tries to play with them, but you know gets knocked around by her brothers and starts crying. But there's such joy with them. And it's such joy. They just make you happy in ways you never envisioned having children is the single most frustrating thing that's happened to me and the single most joy I've ever felt. And if you can accept that of all the things I do, trying to raise good human beings is the job I value the most. That's my focus. And so if someone wants to make me cry at work, I'm like, you can't, I really don't care. But my kids, why aren't you listening to me? I'm trying really hard. You're not listening. You know? It's a whole different ballgame.
3: What productivity and prioritization tips and advice do you have?
1: Because I'm just thinking, you know, you must have some pretty good tips and tricks. I think you have to think you're never going to get it all done. There's always going to be things on the list that don't get done. So pick your priorities and focus on those. As I say, I want to make sure my kids are clean and they've eaten. Everything else is up for grabs.
3: It's just been a constant uh, juggle and evolution of juggling and prioritizing as they get older, by the sounds of it. Yeah, amazing. So some questions we ask all of our guests, Julia, you know, if you think back, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old
1: self? Stop planning and have fun. It always all works out, but you, I think when you're 30, you're really focused on getting the right things to happen. And I think especially it's not, it seems like uh, women nowadays are a little better, but when I was 30, it was all about getting married too. And I was like, I, there's no one I wanted to get married. And, and if I would have known that I'm not going to get married until I'm 40, but the person I'm married to, I'm going to love madly and feel so extraordinarily lucky that I get to laugh at this person throughout my life, but I'd have to wait for them. That's important. And what's the best advice you've ever been given? Oh, I can tell you. One time, uh, Maria said to me, "You have to remember to be kind to yourself, Uh, because I can be, as I'm sure you can, a bit of a perfectionist. Uh, You want to get—I always want to get things, you know, right or better or move it forward. And sometimes you just have to allow yourself—it's okay, You, you know, this screwed up or this happened." And that's okay. I, I would treat my children better than I treat myself sometimes. And I think it's a good lesson to remember to be kind to yourself.
3: I think that's such a powerful one. And I think especially women, we can be very, very hard taskmasters. So yeah, that's fantastic. Julia, thank you so much for your time today. If listeners are interested in your journey or finding out more about you or the work you do, is there any you would like them to go to learn more?
1: well. You can go on Uber's uh, website where hopefully we'll be launching our social impact component of that and you'll see all the great work that we're doing.
3: Fantastic. Well, Julia, it's been such a delight to speak to you and to get to know your story. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Yeah,
1: it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
2: Thanks a lot. Take care. I love Julia's story about how when she found out she was having triplets, don't you? Yeah, that was such a classic.
3: I also loved how, out of necessity, no doubt, that Julia's learned to just focus on what's
2: really important and not beat herself up about anything else that doesn't get done. Yeah, for sure. And she certainly was thrown in the deep end at Uber when she had to come up with their social purpose and propose such a huge goal, all in the first month there. I know, there's nothing like getting started radically quick Is there? No, there certainly isn't. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Why don't you let us know
3: who you'd like us to interview on the show? Email us at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and we'll see you next week for our next mini episode. Ciao
0: for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods